0: This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. Hey, 11 o'clock service, how are we doing today? Good, good. I'm excited to be here with you today to do two, uh, week two of our sign series. Anyone a little disappointed that the the... Series opener doesn't have more to do with that movie from M. Night with Mel Gibson. You know what I'm talking about, the signs movie? No, nobody's seen that movie? This is fun. This is awesome. (laughs) Excited to be here. I love that new song we did this morning. The glory of your name matters more than my acclaim. I feel like that's the the heart posture of our church that the Lord has been cultivating and and forming in us over the past, um, really since the beginning of the year. I can just sense, I sense the barometric pressure, spiritual pressure in, the, in our city is building. Like, I don't know what God is gonna do. This is my first revival. I'm just gonna be honest with you. First revival, all right? I have no idea what this looks like. All I know is I just wanna be ready. Like, I wanna be hungry, I wanna be stirred, and I wanna be obedient and faithful to what the Lord has put in front of us. I know that that's your heart today, too. So with that in mind, let's get into the Word. This is week two of this series. If you were here last week with Professor Tondrai, Because it was a word last week, water into wine. Um, A little bit of a refresher on some of the stuff that he talked about to set up the series. So the the Gospel of John is different than the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels, which means that they're just similar. It means that they tell a similar vantage point, similar stories, similar message. These Gospels were written closer to the death and resurrection of Jesus and so they exist to answer the question, was Jesus the Messiah of the Jews, all right? Is he the savior of the world? John's gospel is different. John's gospel, actually 90% of what's in John's gospel is not in the other gospels because John exists to answer a different question. John the gospel of John was written um, a, uh, a few years later after Jesus' death and resurrection, and it exists to answer the question is Jesus the son of God. Look with me in John chapter 20 verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the what? son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is trying to show us through his gospel, through the stories and the miracles and the signs that he includes in his gospel. He's trying to show us that Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just somebody who, who performed miracles. He wasn't just somebody who stirred reformation and revival. He wasn't just somebody who uh, died and rose again. He wasn't just somebody who ascended into heaven while still alive. Because I don't know if you thought about this, but Jesus wasn't the only person to do those things. Jesus wasn't the first person in the Bible to perform a miracle. Jesus wasn't the first prophet in the Bible. He wasn't the first revivalist in the Bible. He wasn't the first person to die and get raised from the dead. And he wasn't the first person to ascend into heaven without dying. Hello, Enoch, that little story in the Bible. So... What makes the life, the ministry, the words of Jesus significant is the fact that he was both fully God and fully man. He was the son of God. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at the text today, okay? John chapter two, verses 13 through 22. And I just wanna give you a disclaimer here. If you like messages that have four points that all start with the same letter and rhyme, you're gonna be disappointed in this message. I tried to put points in this message. I tried, I tried, and I have zero points in this message, okay? I've got one point. The point is Jesus, okay? So hopefully you're okay with that. Um, This message has the potential to bring us some uh, revelation and help us to see Jesus a little differently But it also has the potential to bore you to death. Okay, so I need you to lean in It's a little meteor of a message This isn't one of those messages where you're like I can tune out for a point and i'll catch them on the next point No, I need you to stay engaged the whole time. So you don't get lost You don't look up and go. How did we get here? Okay, you with me? All right. John chapter 2 verse 13 through 22 Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who had sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, "'Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise.'" Then his disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house has eaten me up.' So the Jews answered and said to him, "'What sign do you show us since you do these things?' And Jesus answered and said to them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.' Then the Jews said, "'It has taken 46 years to build this temple, "'and you will raise it up in three days?' But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Let's pray. Lord, we love you today, don't we, church? We love you, Lord, and we're here for you, Jesus. We're not here to, 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 to learn what we think about you, but to learn who you really are. Lord, so give us a revelation of who you really are, and, and through that, give us a revelation of who we are in you. Lord, would you stir us to righteousness? Would you stir us to good works? Would you stir us to holiness? Would you stir us to love and affection towards your name? Today, Jesus, everybody said, amen, amen. amen. If the Gospel of John was broken up into episodes like a TV series, this one would be titled The One Where Jesus Gets Upset. Um, I uh, remember reading this story as a kid and thinking that Jesus was taking issue with the fact that they were selling stuff at church. And the problem with that belief as a child was that I went to a church that had a Christian bookstore in it. Anybody else have a bookstore in their church growing up? This bookstore was great. I mean, they had a bunch of Bibles and devotionals, a lot of different Bible covers. There was a big market for that at the time. Bible covers with the zips on it, you know, and then uh, lots of different highlighters that wouldn't bleed through and pens that you could write in your Bible wouldn't bleed through the pages. And they had a whole um, jewelry section for if you were too cheap for James Avery. You know, and you needed to maybe you forgot. You needed to buy your girlfriend a gift, and maybe your relationship would last longer than the silver that was on that uh, piece of jewelry that you gave her. Uh, my favorite section in the bookstore, though, was the the Christian T-shirt section. All right, now this was the early thousands. All right, we weren't cool, y'all. We weren't cool yet. The church wasn't cool yet. And the merchandise in the the bookstore was not cool yet either. I remember there was this one T-shirt that had a a giant guitar pick on it and written in the Fender guitar font, it said, Pick Jesus. (laughs) Ugh, not good. Um, I remember there was this one that looked like a uh, a McDonald's shirt. I don't know how they got away with this, but they did. Uh, McDonald's shirt, this red shirt, you know, the golden arch. But instead of an M, it had an N on it. And it said, Noah, I'm flooding it. (laughs) Just think about that for a second. And it's like, you know, I remember thinking as a kid, like Jesus, if this is the kind of merchandise you're taking issue with, I'm with you, all right? Like this tracks, like I'm about to fashion a whip out of these WWJD bracelets right here and start driving people out of this bookstore. That is not what Jesus is communicating to us through this story, nor is it what John is trying to say, all right? Jesus is not taking issue with selling things at church. We're not gonna tear down our merch store out in the, in the lobby because we sell cool shirts, not lame shirts, okay? This is not what Jesus is taking issue with. This is not the problem. What, what is Jesus taking issue with, Okay. What is John trying to show us? What kind of sign is John trying to show us in including this? Because I think the temptation for us is to read this story. And listen, if if we're honest with ourselves, we read this story and we go, well, that was interesting. And then we just kind of move on, right? We read it and we're like, hmm. And then we just kind of move on. All right. But John included this in the gospel for a purpose. So what is it that, G, that John is trying to show us about Jesus in this story? Okay, to, to understand this, we're going to need to have an understanding of two things. One, what on earth is going on with these merchants and these money changers? And two, we're going to have to have a grasp on the temple. All right, so let's talk about the temple for a second. If you're unfamiliar with the temple, in Jewish culture, in Jesus' time, there were two main buildings of worship that a, a Jew would, would walk in and out of on a regular basis. All right, the first one was the synagogue. And the synagogue, they had synagogues all over the place in, in different villages, in different cities. And these were places where they could gather together, hear the word of God, pray together, and and, and develop a community, okay? This is kind of like the local church. This is different than the temple. The temple was a central location and it was the central location for all Jewish religious life revolved around the temple. So the sacrifices were, this is where the feasts were celebrated. The, the, the Jews viewed the temple almost like a door, that this is the doorway where, hev- where earth gets to heaven and where heaven gets to earth, okay? Now the temple where Jesus is setting this scene up at is not the original temple. I know you know that, this is not the original temple. So we're gonna go all the way back to Moses time to kind of illustrate this we're gonna go all the way back to the tabernacle y'all remember Moses we read about him a couple weeks ago in our being transformed journals yes okay Moses we're gonna go all the way back to Moses you remember um, God has just brought the people of Israel out of bondage and out of slavery from the Egyptians and God comes to Moses and he goes I want to establish I want you to build me a, a place of residence among the people and so he gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle now I'm not gonna go into all the intricacies of it. Just a couple things you need to know about it. One, it was a, a tent, so it was mobile. They could move it wherever they went. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Indiana Jones this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the tablet of stone was. This is where the, um, the rod of Aaron was. And essentially it functions, the tabernacle functions in three ways. And we're gonna keep coming back to this. So write this down, remember it. It's where the sacrifice for sin was offered so that the people could be right with God. It's where the law was kept and taught, and it's where the glory of God, his presence resided, okay? All right, now we're gonna fast forward a little bit to the temple of Solomon. You guys remember Solomon? He's uh, King David's son. He's now stepped onto the throne, and God comes to Solomon, he goes, I want to establish a place of permanent residence in the midst of my people. And so He get, God gives Solomon the plans for the temple. This is called the, the Temple of Solomon. Um, essentially, it was, it functioned the same ways as the tabernacle. They moved the ark and the table of Stone and Aaron's rod and all the things from the tabernacle to the temple. It was, it was an upgrade. It was like their first building, their first building campaign. It's, it's where uh, it was beautiful. It had art, it had gold everywhere, but essentially, it, it, it served to do the th- main three purposes as the tabernacle, all right, which were it's where the sacrifice for sin was offered, it's where the, uh, so the people can be made right with god it's where the law was kept and it's where the glory of god his presence resided okay fast forward a little bit in time and we get to what if you know your bible history we get to what we call the babylonian captivity or the babylonian exile okay so the people of god have turned from god and worshipped idols and they've forsaken god and so god allows the babylonian empire to come through and the babylonian empire comes and ransacks uh jerusalem tears down the temple and, and carries the uh, uh, people of Jerusalem off to Babylonian captivity. Fast forward another 70 years, and the Persians have taken over, risen to power, and the Israelites are allowed to return again to Jerusalem to build the second temple. Okay, so the second temple, the problem with the second temple is it wasn't nearly as nice or as good as the first temple. Um, they, the city had been uh, stripped of its resources, the people were stripped of their resources, and so they couldn't build something of the same scale as the first temple. Uh, There's actually this beautiful scene represented in Ezra where the people from um, the previous generation, because it had only been about 70 years since the first temple had been torn down, the people of the previous generation um, who remembered what the temple of Solomon looked like could see the new temple, and it says that they wept and they mourned aloud, while the new generation, the young generation, rejoiced because they were in the midst of revival, because people were turning back to God. They rejoiced at what God was doing, and it's this beautiful scene where you see both mourning and rejoicing taking place at the same time where you don't know, it says in the word, they don't know if it was mourning or rejoicing that was lifted. And it's this beautiful picture of how we exist as the church, where we, we mourn this state of the world and we mourn the state of what was or what could have been, but also we're stirred in faith to what God is doing. Okay, so, so they build this second temple and here's why it's okay that this temple wasn't as good as the first temple, all right? Because this really was a statement of repentance on behalf of the Israelites. They were going, Lord, we, God, we understand that the reason why the Babylonians were able to take over, take us over, is because we had turned from you. And so by building this temple, we're turning our hearts back to you and we're saying, God, we wanna be your people again. Okay. Fast forward a couple hundred years in the future and the empire of Rome has risen and they have established a king over the area of Jerusalem. And this is King Herod. All right. King Herod, same King Herod as in the, in the story of Jesus's birth, who, when he finds out about the king of the Jews being born, orders for all the babies to be killed. All right. This is the same King Herod, bad dude. All right. Got it. Bad dude, bad dude. Okay. Bad dude. But he wants to curry favor with the Israelites. And also, since he's very egotistical, he wants to build something that he will be remembered by. And he's an architect. So he works with the people of Israel and he works with the priests to refurbish and to build on the second temple. Now, this second temple that they built, these refurbishments that they, that they brought into it, they, they, they expanded the temple to be about 36 acres, all right, 30 it was huge. They could fit almost a million people inside of this temple. It was massive. I've got a picture of it right here up on the screen. This is a recreation of, of what they thought it looked like. This, you see how small the city looks behind it. This temple was massive, okay? Uh, a couple things you need to know about this temple. The, the inner area right here, this where, where the building is right there in the middle, this is called the, the Court of the Priests. Only the priests were allowed into this area, only the consecrated priests were allowed into this area. This is where the sacrifices were were made. Um, Inside of that building is where the Holy of Holies was, which the the priest could only enter in one time a year, okay? Um, This lower court right here is called the court of the Jews. So only those of Jewish descent could walk into that court. And then all of this area on the outside, all of that is called the court of the Gentiles. And anybody who wanted to come worship and pray could walk into this part of the temple. Now, this is where the scene where Jesus cleanses the temple takes place, okay? You with me? All right, so let's talk about what it is that the people, that the merchants and the money changers are doing. Because the act itself of selling the sacrificial animals and uh, changing money, it, the, 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 the act itself was not wrong or, or that abnormal, okay? I want you to think about it. You go to another country, And we have American dollars and you go somewhere else where they take the euro and you have to go to a money changer in order to exchange that currency. All right. Not that abnormal. If you were a a Jew coming into town to pay your temple tax, every Jew had over the age of 20 that was a male had to pay a temple tax. And so they had to use the currency of the land. Totally normal. Also, um, the selling of the sacrificial animals. It wasn't that abnormal. If you lived outside of the city limits and you were traveling in to offer a sacrifice to leave your animals at home and to purchase a sacrifice in town, or let's say that you lived in Jerusalem, and let's say that you just had your first baby boy. Your first baby boy, you had to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice of a turtle dove or two small pigeons, okay? Let's say that you're a carpenter, like Jesus' dad. We actually see this uh, laid out in, in Luke. Um, of Jesus' uh, mother and father going to the temple to offer this. Say that you're a, um, a carpenter. You probably don't just have turtle doves hanging around, right? You know, like what are you gonna do, go catch one? No, you're gonna have to go buy that from somewhere and then you have to go bring it to the temple. So what they were doing in itself was not wrong. What Jesus took issue with was two things. One, it was how they were doing it and it's where they were doing it. Okay, so let's talk about how they were doing it. Essentially, what they were doing, these merchants and these money changers, is they were price gouging. Okay, anyone ever been to the Oklahoma City Airport before? <laughs> you know, all right. Uh, I I uh, got the opportunity to go with Pastor Josh and Sarah to a conference in New York a couple of weeks ago, and our flight boarded at 5:30 in the morning. So, what time was that? Was I at the airport? 4:30 in the morning. Some of you said three. You guys are you guys are extreme. No, we were there at 4:30 in the morning. What is the first thing that's on my mind, the only thing on my mind at 4 3 in the morning? I need some coffee, right? So Starbucks is so kind, they put a little Starbucks right there outside of security. Okay, a new Starbucks next to the new security. So we checked our bags, we go through security. I go and I go stand in line, I'm kind of in this sleepy stupor, and I'm standing in line, I get, get to the front of the line, and the lady's like, how can I help you? And I say, I would like a small black coffee. Because my grandpa said, this is how men drink coffee. Small <laughs> black coffee and this sweet lady she just looks me right in the eye she goes great that'll be seven dollars seven dollars and it's like if i want coffee this is the price i'm going to pay because what am i going to do i can't leave right i already been through security also i can't bring coffee through security if i want coffee this is the price i'm going to have to pay now if we're not careful As Americans who who live in the kind of society that we do, uh, we might tend to think, well, good for the merchants and money changers. Like they got a good location. Like if you don't like the price of the temple sacrifices, you can go buy your sacrifice at the Aldi equivalent, right? (laughs) But we need to understand something, okay? This wasn't an amusement park. This wasn't a movie theater where you're paying $20 for popcorn. This was not the airport. This was a house of worship and prayer. OK, this was not a place to be focused on revenue where, we, where, where the attitude of let's see how we can turn a profit is. And this is what Jesus is identifying. So it's it's what it's how they were doing it. But it's also where they were doing it. I want you to, to travel with me for a second back in time. Let's say that you are a devout Jewish family that lives about two days travel outside of the city. And let's say you've got small children. We, we've got, my wife and I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and our four-year-old Abel. Um, uh, this was like the first Christmas that he like really understood what was going on. Like those of you with kids, like no, like there comes an age where they're like, I'm aware now of things that are happening around me. And this is the first year that like leading up to Christmas, like we could kind of build some anticipation and like he woke up every day. He's like, is it Christmas yet? Like we did the advent calendar. It was a ton of fun. So let's say, that you're a devout Christian family, or a devout Jewish family, and you live about two days outside of the city, and you've got small children with you, and Passover is approaching. So as a devout Jewish family, you would travel to Jerusalem a couple times a year to observe these feasts. So let's say Passover's coming, and so about a month out, you begin to save up money so that you can travel into the city, and you begin to talk to your family about, hey, we're about to go celebrate Passover in a couple weeks. Like, it's gonna be awesome. Passover is when we celebrate the fact that God had brought us, out of slavery Well you don't what you don't know about me and mom is that me and mom we come from a we come from a people that used to be slaves we used to be nobodies but god saw us in our despair and he pulled us up out of that and he he called us his own people oh so we're gonna go in a couple in a couple weeks and we're gonna go we're gonna go worship the lord and offer him a sacrifice in the temple like you're you're beginning to to build this anticipation in your family and then and then the day arrives for you to to, to leave on your journey and to travel towards Jerusalem. And they had these psalms that they would sing every year on the way to Passover. These psalms are filled with. Um, the 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 worship of God and how faithful He is and stories about how God had delivered the people of Israel and and they're like picture this you're traveling with your neighbors and your friends and you're traveling on a two day journey where you're just talking about all the cool things that God has done and all the ways that God has delivered you and you're just worshiping the Lord and you get to the city of Jerusalem you can see its skyline you begin to get those butterflies in your stomach right and you get all the way up to the temple because you're so ready you're so stirred and prepared to offer your worship to the Lord and you walk into the temple and you go to pay your temple tax and you go to purchase your sacrifice and you get absolutely taken advantage of. What's that going to do? It's going to steal from your worship. Instead of being filled with the, with, with the awe of God and the thankfulness of God, now you're, you've got anxious thoughts about, do we have enough money to get back? Do we have enough money to pay for food while we're in the city? Now, 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 what was a time where you were focusing on God, now you're focusing back on earth? Remember, this is a doorway from, from earth to heaven. So Jesus taking an issue with how they were doing it, and Jesus taking an issue with, with where they were doing it. So one of the reasons we know that everybody was on the same page, that this was wrong, that is because when Jesus starts to drive out these people and drive out these things and flip over tables, no one tries to stop him. You ever thought about that? Like there, there are temple guards, there are priests, there are other people around. And if what Jesus was doing was too offhanded, there would have been people that would have tried to resist him. Nobody tries to resist him. Why? Because they know this is corrupt, what is happening. So then my question then becomes, why now? As a devout Jewish man, Jesus would have traveled to the temple hundreds of times at this point. He was around 30 years old when this takes place. Hundreds of times. He's probably walked by these very merchants and these very money changers. Why now? Why does Jesus decide now is the time he's going to address the corruption? Okay, so to understand this, we're gonna go all the way back to the tabernacle again. Okay, check on your neighbor. They still awake? Everybody still with me? Yes? Yes? Okay, we're going to go all the way back to the tabernacle. I want to look at launch day of the tabernacle, all right? Opening day of the tabernacle. Moses has finally finished everything, putting everything in place. Let's look and see what happens. Exodus chapter 40, verse 33 through 35. And he raised up the court. This is Moses all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So so Moses finishes all the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. They've got the altar put just right. They've got the Ark of the Covenant put just right. And then what happens? The glory of God fills the tabernacle in such a way that Moses isn't able to continue ministering. It disrupts the flow of ministry because the presence of God has fallen, okay? Let's fast forward. What happens at the opening day of Solomon's temple? 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of, the, of God. Same exact thing takes place. So the, the priest, they get everything set just right. They get the altar of incense angled just right. And then what happens? The glory of the Lord fills the temple in such a way that it drives out the priest. They are not able to continue ministering. It disrupts the flow of the sacrifices, okay? What happens at the second temple? Let's see. Ezra chapter six, verse 17 through 18 and they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, one hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all, 12, uh, for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it was written in the book of Moses. That's it. Where's the glory? Where's the great, mighty work of God? Can you imagine being one of those priests at the time? Like, they, they're, they're in the midst of revival. Like, the people, they're, they're finally getting, they've been in captivity, and they're finally getting to come back and to build the temple again. They're finally, people are turning, the people of Israel are turning back to God. And can you imagine that they'd be putting together all the pieces of the temple and building it, and they're talking among themselves, and do you remember do you remember what Moses did, What happened when Moses finished the tabernacle and the and the glory of God filled it in such a way that he couldn't even continue? Man, I can't imagine. I can't. I can't wait to see what God does. Can you imagine being the priests as they talked about? Man, do you remember when they finished the first temple? And I know this temple isn't going to be as good as the first temple, but God's the same and God's good. So, so I mean, I can't imagine. I remember the the glory of God filled. Like I remember reading in Second Chronicles the glory of God filled in such a mighty way that the priests weren't able to continue ministering. And then you get to the end, and they've completed the temple and they've offered the sacrifices, and then nothing happens. Can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the confusion? But I love how the people and the priests respond. Ezra chapter 6, verse 19 through22. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from the captivity, they ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations in the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hand in the work of the house of God, the house of Israel. What did the people do? They didn't get discouraged. I think one of the issues that we have is we look back at how God has moved in the past and we use it to define what it will look like for God to move again. We look back and we go, this is how God's moved in the past, either come through for us, e- either healed us or either delivered us or maybe revivals in the past. And we look back to them in the past and we try to recreate the conditions again so that God will move again and we, and we define it. And we go, if God's gonna move, it's gonna look like this. Here's the problem with this, is that our understanding and view of God is so, so limited, Like God is massively glorious and complex. And to say that we've got a handle to predict what God is going to do is insane to me. Yes, the character of God does not change. Please hear me. God will never violate his word. It's one of the gifts of the word of God as we can look at it to get a grasp of who God is, but God's gonna do what He wants to do. All right, it's our job to do what the people of Israel do in this story. Is they what do they do? They separate themselves from the filth of the nations in the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel, and they keep the feasts. They pursue radical holiness and they pursue radical obedience. They pursue. I think we think holiness is like a behavior. Holiness is not a behavior. I think we look at it and we go, holiness looks like if I'm doing these things and I'm not doing these things. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is going, God, my life is wholly yours. Holiness is living in a way that goes, God, all of my life, I'm doing my best to direct all of its energy and all of its attention and all of its affection and all of its purpose. I'm doing my best to maintain this posture before you of being holy, yours, and separating ourselves from the filth of the world. That's what holiness is, and it's obedience. Can you imagine, can you imagine? One of the feasts that they observed was the feast of Passover. Imagine this for a second. These people are celebrating a feast that is pointing to when God has delivered them out of captivity while their brethren are still in captivity. They're obeying God, not out of a circumstance, but out of a posture of being the children of God. This is what we do because we're God's children. They pursued radical holiness and radical obedience. It's one of the things I love about this Asbury revival is that, It it started in this dusty old chapel. And in every video you see, what do you see right above that organ? Holiness unto the Lord. I believe the Lord is raising up a standard again and a call again. The trumpet is being sounded. Consecrate yourselves unto the Lord. The problem remains though, the glory hadn't fallen. This is a problem because While they were building the temple, there was a prophecy that went out, prophecy from the prophet Haggai, and everybody would have heard this prophecy. I want to read it for you. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. This is problematic because when the temple gets finished, no glory, right? There was a prophecy, thus says the Lord, the Lord had said there was gonna be glory, even greater glory than that of before. Yet when the day came, no glory arrived. Okay, let's look back at Jesus for a second, okay? What happens right before, I wanna look at what happens right before Jesus walks into the temple to create this scene. John chapter one, verse 32, this is when Jesus gets baptized. And John the Baptist bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. So Jesus gets filled with the presence of God, the glory of God. So when he goes into the temple in chapter two and cleanses it and drives out the sacrificial animals, the oxen and the lambs and the doves, and he turns over the money changers' tables, he is fulfilling the prophecy of Haggai. Jesus, the Son of God, filled with the presence of God, the most glorious thing to ever walk the earth. Walks into the temple. Thus thus fulfilling the prophecy of Haggai, he's now made this temple more glorious than the first. And what does he do? He disrupts the flow of the sacrifices. That is incredible. I can't see this any differently now. Like Jesus has shown up in such a mighty way. But that's not all. That's not all, okay? There's more to this, okay? Everything in the tabernacle, everything in the temple, they existed to point to Jesus. Everything. The temple and the tabernacle were all temporary placeholders for Jesus. Okay, let's remind ourselves of the, of the three things, uh, the three ways that the tabernacle and the temple function, okay? It's where the sacrifice for sin was offered so that the people could be made right with God. It's where the law and the prophets was kept and taught, and it's where the glory of God, His presence resided, okay? Let me go back to John 1 for a second, and over the course of about 15 verses, I'm going to cherry pick a couple of these verses so we can get a good picture of this, okay? John chapter 1, verse 29 This is john the baptist he says this behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world philip says in verse 45 we have found him who moses in the law and also the prophets wrote jesus of nazareth the son of joseph in verse 32 the spirit descended on him from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him jesus is the lamb who is sacrificed for the sin of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And Jesus is now the place where the glory of God, his presence is residing. When Jesus walks into the temple to disrupt the flow of the sacrifices, what he's saying is, I am now the temple. This is why when the Jews come to him after, right after this happens and they go, what sign do you have to do this, basically what they're saying, who do you think you are? And what does he say? Tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. He's saying, I am now the temple of God. I am now the doorway where earth can get to heaven. This is incredible. And, and, and furthermore, Jesus is fulfilling his priestly role, his priestly duty in cleansing out the temple, okay? Um, uh, if you read in Leviticus 14, I'm not going to read it for you today. If you if you would like some light reading this week, Leviticus 14 <laughs> is awesome. It's all about leprosy. Okay, so don't read it at lunch. That's not a lunchtime Devo. Um, Leviticus 14, um, all about leprosy, and towards the end of the chapter is a protocol for how the priests are supposed to handle a leprous house. Now, obviously houses don't get sick. This is talking about what to do when they find uh, mold or mildew in the house, okay? So in the Old Testament, if you found mold or mildew in your house, uh, you would call up the priests. The priests would come, evaluate the situation. Then they would scrape out all the mold and the mildew out of the house. They would replace any stones they needed to. They would replace the plaster. And then they would come back at a later date to identify if the mold or mildew had returned. Okay, did you know that this is not the only time that Jesus cleanses the temple? So the Gospel of John portrays this taking place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, portray this taking place at the end of Jesus' ministry. Is this a mistake? Is this an error? No, it's not. It's intentional, okay? Let me read for you. Let me read for you what it says in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Again, just to remind you, if the priests find mold and mildew back again, if they come back, I don't know if I cleared this up, if they come back and they find that the corruption has returned, here's what they do. They declare that every timber and every stone be torn down and carried outside of the city limits, okay? If they find, this, if they find the corruption has returned, okay? Let's read what, what, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Now, as he drew, new, drew near to, the, to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and they will not leave you in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do you wanna know what happens directly after this verse? Jesus goes and cleanses the temple for the second time. So Jesus, according to his priestly duty, walks into Jerusalem, now as the new temple in John. And he goes and he disrupts the flow of ministry. The glory of God has come. He identifies the corruption and he drives it out. He then returns, according to Leviticus, back at a later date, finds that the corruption has returned. And he declares that every stone will be overturned in this house. Okay, here's what's crazy. 37 years after Jesus, The Roman Empire comes through, besieges the city of Jerusalem, and they tear down the temple and absolutely demolish it. So much so, Pastor Joshua told me this last night. What they did when they came in and they burned up the temple is the gold that was on top of the temple had melted into the stone. And so they had to carry every stone out of the city so that they could break it up and pull out all the gold. There was nothing left of the temple. What Jesus is saying in this is he's saying this old form of relating to God is obsolete. I am now the way. I am now the door. I am now the doorway to heaven. And it's important to understand this because now we can begin to understand why Jesus does things the way that he does. Everything Jesus does after this moment in John, he's doing it as the temple. He is now the mobile temple walking around, and he's still facilitating the ministry of God. Okay, think about this. What are the two things that uh, the Pharisees were always getting upset at Jesus for doing? Okay, one, it was doing stuff on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath. Two, it was forgiving people, declaring people forgiven. Those are the two things that was, they were always getting upset with Jesus on. Okay. Jesus, he's the temple. He heals on the Sabbath. He's got the authority to do this. Do you know why? Because temple work didn't stop on the Sabbath. Makes sense now. Makes sense. Jesus didn't just being a rebel, all right? He's functioning within the authority that God has given him, okay? Also, in the Old Testament, when people get forgiven, you'd have to go offer a sacrifice. A priest would come and have to declare you clean and forgiven, okay? Jesus, he's the temple, and so when he goes to people and he says, your sins are forgiven. Right then in that moment, they are. Because he is the lamb of God. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is where the glory of God, his presence resides. Jesus is the temple. And understanding this and seeing Jesus through this light helps us to now see ourselves differently. I wanna read a, a, ver, a couple of verses for you. Galatians chapter two, verse 20 and I've been crucified with Christ. The life which I now live is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so now, when we come into saving faith relationship with Jesus, like not just an agreement that Jesus existed, But when we start to understand that there is a holy God that we have sinned against and he is just, and there is no way that we can reach him without the blood of Jesus. There's no way we can get to him without the blood of Jesus and that Jesus is our only avenue of that taking place. Which means this, in order for us to enter in through the door of Jesus, we have to die. His life is made substitute for ours. You cannot maintain a pulse. You cannot maintain a spiritual pulse and walk in the redemption, the redemptive love of Jesus. It's one or the other. And when we come into a revelation of this, That, listen, there is a holy God out there who loves me, yes, but he's holy. And if I'm gonna get to him, I've gotta go through the blood of Jesus. When we come to that realization and we surrender and yield our lives unto him, what happens is that Jesus comes to dwell and live in us. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter six makes sense. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's." That verse isn't saying that that, that we are all different temples carrying the same spirit inside of us. What the verse is saying is that we are all carriers of the same temple and that temple is Jesus. So what then is our responsibility as carriers of the temple of God inside of us, okay? I wanna look at the Great Commission. If you're unfamiliar with this, the Great Commission is one of the last uh, words that Jesus gives to his disciples. And for 2,000 years, the church has looked to this to define what our role in the world is, okay? Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Let's see what jumps out at us here. Then Jesus came to find them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you catch it? It's the three functions of the temple. Our role in this world is to live in such a way in which we point to Jesus and we say, listen, there's a holy God that's out there and I found a way to get to him. The door's in me and in me is Jesus. Jesus. That's what our role is. It's to, it's to what does it say? To teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and he, 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 he brought the law and the prophets all down to two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our role in this world is to live at the standard of God everywhere that we go. What's the third one? And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's to be carriers of the presence of God wherever we walk. We are now the temple because the temple lives in us. So the question I have for you today, I feel like the Holy Spirit might be stirring in you, is is there anything in you that you need to let Jesus cleanse? Is there anything in you that you need to have driven out of your life? I wanna remind you where this scene takes place is in the court of the Gentiles, right? Can you put that picture back up there, Zane, of the temple? So this is all taking place in in the court of the Gentiles. This was as close to God as the Gentiles could get. I don't know if you thought about this before, but the closest that some of the people that you are in contact with can get to God is your life. That's as close as they're gonna get. So is there anything in our lives that, I'm not even saying it's, it's sinful, but is there anything in the, that's distracting? Because the time for complacency is past and the time for mediocrity is gone. I love what, what, what the disciples remember about this story of Jesus. It says, zeal for his house has eaten me up. It's time for zeal again. Is there anything in your life that you need Jesus to cleanse and drive out? so that the glory of God can be made evident. What even is the glory of God? I mean, it's something we pray for, it's something we sing about, it's something we, we pray to fall in our services and to, to fall over our city. What, what even is the glory of God? John chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God is two parts. It's the grace of God. It is the manifest love and kindness of God. It is is, is the wonderful faithfulness of God. It's the love of God. This is the grace of God. But then there's a truth of God. And this is the great tension that God exists in where he so loves us and wants to be near us, but he knows that he's holy. So if he gets too close to us, we die. That's the great tension that God lives in because there's a truth to God. He is holy and there is no other way to get to him except unless you are perfect. There's no other standard in which you can relate to him and get to him. There's no amount of goodwill. There's no amount of giving. There's no amount of good behavior that can get you to, to, to God except Perfection, okay? That's why it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of that truth, but God loves us so much and He wants to be near us. So, what does He do? He creates a door. He sends Jesus down to be the mediator between the two. So now, because of the love and the kindness of God, we can then walk and, and, and be transformed to the image of Jesus because he has already been that standard for us. Now, with his reality living inside of us, we get to go, do good works and live in, in, in a righteous way. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Would you stand to your feet today? Because I believe that there is a, a, an opportunity in front of us. where a lot of us have been living at this tension of, I wanna go all out for God, but like I just, there's just some stuff that's holding me back. And I think there's a question that, that we can ask ourselves, what would it look like for the glory of God to fill our homes? Like what would we change? Like if Jesus shows up in my house, like what are we shoving in the drawers? What are we deleting off our TV? Like what, what time are we getting up in the morning? Like if we know Jesus is there what what needs to change about our lives so the glory of God can be made evident? What, what would it look like for the glory of God to fill our city? Think about that for a second. What would it look like for the glory of God? Because that's what we're praying for. We're praying that the glory of God would fall on our city in such a way, not so that pews would be full, but that hearts would be reattuned to Him, that we'd be made aware of His holiness. And the fact that if a God exists, I got to deal with that. Like, I got to find a way to deal with that. If there's a perfect God out there and I deserve hell, like there's, I got to do something about that. And it makes, it makes me look unto Jesus and it makes me, it makes me value the gospel in a different way. I love how Peter says that Do you, you weren't bought with the, the cheap blood of goats, but you were bought with the precious blood of Christ. And I think the fact that the gospel is available to everyone, it cheapens it in our hearts somehow. Listen, there is a holy God out there and we are, are sinners in, in need, in, in due justice of hell but only because of Jesus. And that reality forces us to have to make some decisions in our life. It forces us to have to go, am I right with God? It forces us to go, am I living in a way that honors the sacrifice that He has made for me? Am I living in such a way that that, that, that points to the glory of God? And so the question I just have, and we're just gonna sit in silence for a second. I wanna invite the ultra ministry team to come down. But what I, I, wanna, I wanna put in front of us is this tension of, is there anything in your temple that you need to drive out? And it doesn't have to be this like big pivotal moment. Maybe it is for you. Maybe you realize realizing like you're not saved. Maybe you realize you've never fully surrendered your life to Jesus. Like this is the day to do that. Like don't leave and go to lunch and then let that slide off your back. Like sit in this for a second. But maybe it's something small and you're just like, no, there's some things that are pulling away from my attention because Jesus will not take any other love than your first love. He will not take any other devotion other than your first devotion. And so I wanna sit here for a second and I believe that there is some steps of repentance in front of us today. So just bow your heads, close your eyes. And these altars are about to be full. I sense it today. And if that's you, if you say, I need, some, I need to clean out my temple. I need, the Holy, I need Jesus to come and cleanse my temple. Once you start making your way down, maybe you just need to come at the altar and bow and humble yourself in front of this room full of people and go, Jesus, I don't need the approval of man. I need your approval today. Come on, just begin to move and respond to the Lord. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, Go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for Newsong Church OKC in the App Store.